There is a word that is used most often in Christian circles, and it is the word grace. Grace is defined often as favor, goodwill, an undeserved gift. And I think we're all familiar with the words of the Apostle Paul when in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, It is for by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And it is on that verse many times that we simplify this word grace. There's acrostics that are used. How many of you have heard this, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense? Sometimes these type of things often are too simplistic. You see, grace is a complex word. It is a Greek word in the original language, charis, and it's used 155 times in the New Testament, but it can sometimes mean that which is pleasing or showing charm or beauty, and sometimes it is a pleasing circumstance, and sometimes it's graciousness. And so we've entitled this series, Goodness Gracious, and they both go together. That is, how can we be good people? Well, we also have to be gracious people as well. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind when you think a little bit about the word grace. It's not just about our security going into the next life. It's about how we live our life. It's about how we share our life. It's about how we serve other people. And certainly, we know that there are times in our life where we can show grace to other people easily, and other times it is quite hard. But sometimes we are groomed to think of grace only in terms of the free gift rather than this idea of graciousness. And it can almost become like an oxbow lake. This is an oxbow lake, and I'm going to explain in a moment what that is. In other words, people kind of sit in this particular position, and they don't move off of it. They don't advance. They don't mature. They don't grow in their concept of what it means to be a gracious individual toward other people. So in this series, we are using this Hebrew word called tov, which is translated goodness in the Old Testament. And this is the circle of goodness. And each week we're taking one topic, and last week we talked about nurturing empathy toward other people, and today we want to talk about nurturing grace. And the way that we're going to do it is we are going to think a little bit about the two sides of being able to be gracious to other people, and here's what it is. One is gambling on grace. It's a risk to show grace to other people. The other is we need to grow into it. So just kind of hold on to those two thoughts as we get started this morning. Gambling on grace. What do I mean by that? Well, you know what's interesting? Out of all the times that grace is used in the New Testament letters by Paul and Peter and so forth, the word grace is only used four times in the Gospels that actually tell the story of Jesus, which is kind of, kind of interesting to me. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it talks about Jesus. He grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. But I read for you a moment ago 
this passage out of John chapter 1, verses 14 and following. And the other places the word grace appears in the Gospels is in this paragraph. It says, he was full of grace and truth. It talks about from his fullness of life we have received grace upon grace, and the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There you have it. The Gospels only mention grace these few times. Well, why is that the case? Because the Gospels embody what grace looks like. It's interesting that Jesus never used the word grace, not one time, but he is the embodiment of grace in every encounter you read in these gospel accounts. He is the grace of God walking in sandals. He is making his way through the world as the pardon of God. And all of Jesus' actions are expressions of grace. Now what's unusual is the way he teaches grace. And he catches us off guard. There's a little genre type in the gospels called parables, and they're stories, sort of like the one I read at the beginning of our service today. And we're to take something from these parables, but sometimes we scratch our head as to what the point of the parable is. I'm going to read for you a parable, and you're going to scratch your head why this is even in the teachings of Jesus, until we can show a little bit of a contrast, okay? So here it is. In Luke chapter 16, there is a parable, and I'm going to read it, and you kind of look here, and then I'll, I'll make these main points, okay? Here it goes. In Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to him, self, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, that when I am removed from management, People will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master, he asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Now, after he goes through this long transition, verse 8 says, well, then the master praised the manager because he acted shrewdly. So instead of the master or the landlord saying, you cost me a lot of money by taking half the amount I was owed, he praised him. So let's dissect this for a few moments. So this is kind of a once-upon-a-time story that is designed to disorient us. It's designed to get us off balance. So once upon a time, there's this wealthy landlord, and he had a manager to oversee his renters, and the manager squandered the possessions of his landlord. 
After a review of the books, the landlord is going to fire the manager, but the manager comes up with a plan to reduce the rent so that the debtors could pay off their debt. Now the landlord has a choice to make. Is he going to imprison the manager, or will he imitate the manager? Think about that for a moment. Is he going to imprison the manager because he lost so much money, or is he going to imitate him? Will the landlord be gracious, or will he be greedy? And that's the question. This parable, in many ways, is showing us how closed we are in our lives, how hard our heart is at times. And what we find is here, the landlord, he actually has a softer heart than what we're told at the beginning of the parable because he sees that what the manager did on behalf of those who were in debt to the landlord was actually benefiting them and helping them and giving to them the help that they needed. And he chooses to imitate this individual that most of us would say, I'm going to get you, man. You owe me because of this little tactic that you did. I'm going to get every dime back. But the landlord, actually the prodigal landlord. You see, in chapter 15 of Luke, we've already heard the story of the prodigal son. And the same phrase is used when the prodigal son took his father's wealth and went out and squandered it all. When he came back, his dad wrapped him, loved him, and threw a party on his behalf. And then Jesus goes into this parable of the landlord and the manager, and all of a sudden we are given this huge portrait of what God is really like. He isn't out to get people, and he's not out to make them miserable. He is out to embrace them, help them, love them, enable them to become a better person as well. Now, what's fascinating in this parable is the idea of God will be to you what you show him to be to other people. Let me say that again. God will be to you what you show to him to be to other people. In many ways, if you believe God is gracious and good, you will find him to be gracious and good to you as well. But if you present him to be a tyrant, that will be the experience that you will have of God as well. And you will not be filled with freedom, but you will be filled with fear. But what if it's true that the measure you use is what will be measured back to you? And what if you get caught on an oxbow of ancient thought rather than gambling that God really is a gracious God? So what is an oxbow? So an oxbow lake is quite interesting. An oxbow lake is off of a river. And what happens is because of the erosion that happens over a long period of time, it begins to cut off the lake. And as you know, water always takes the path of least resistance. And so what eventually happens as a river finds that it's eroding, and then there's these sedimentary deposits that are left behind. It begins to squeeze off the river, 
and all that is left is an oxbow lake that is no longer connected to the river. This river is fresh water, but that oxbow lake, it's stagnant. It just sits there. But look at this picture again. Do you see pictures of houses there? They are sitting on stagnant water. They are sitting on that which is not fresh water, that it somehow will have to be cleaned up before it can be used. And when people find religion and their conception of God is one of a tyrant, that God is out to get people, and in our fear we live with that our entire lives, it begins to erode our soul. And as it erodes our soul, we can't find grace. We can't find graciousness deep down inside of our soul because it has been cut off. We're living on an oxbow lake. And many people choose to only associate with other people that are living on that same oxbow lake. And that's where all these little groups develop that think that they're right because they're living far from the fresh water, right? And they only know what they experience right in front of them, rather than moving farther down and finding the fresh water and where the fresh water is flowing and the new experience of grace that can be encountered. So the Bible is a long and meandering river that occasionally cuts back upon itself and it creates oxbow lakes of archaic thought at times that no, is no longer connected to the flow of where God is actually taking the human race. And this is so very important. An oxbow lake forms when a river creates this meander, and what happens is it's due to the eroding river's uh, eroding bank. Uh, after an extended period of time, you can't find fresh water. Isn't that kind of the experience of people with religion? many times. They don't move beyond what they've been taught as a kid or what they've been taught in church for years and years. And so they're stuck at this place here. How are they going to get off that oxbow lake? Well, just like the manager, they're going to have to take a gamble. They're going to have to gamble on grace. You see, there are some things that Christians believe that make them less than gracious. You've run into them, I've run into them. And in their pride, and in their self-righteousness, because they're living on this oxbow lake, right? And that's their experience, and that's what they know, and that's what they'll defend, that they never ever realize that the Bible continues to move forward until you get to Christ. And when you get to Christ, you get to see what God is really like. All we are given is small portraits in the Old Testament. And some of those portraits are on oxbow lakes. But Jesus comes. He becomes flesh. That he might show us what God is like. And all of a sudden, we can feel the freedom through that progressive revelation that we don't need to live on a swamp of old thinking, because the Spirit is still working. God is still speaking. 
not only through his son, but through his people that might understand that we're going to take a gamble on grace. Actually, it's no gamble, uh, gamble at all. Because when we find the freedom, what we're going to understand is that grace-filled goodness begins with forgiveness first for us, and then as we forgive others, it forms into freedom, and all of a sudden, our levels of fear begin to go down. And that's such a freeing thing. Not to live in fear, not to be haunted by archaic thought, but to actually understand where we are. And so, what's your oxbow lake? Is it self-righteousness? Uh, is it being judgmental? Is it being critical? The story I read for you at the beginning of the service comes from a pastor who was teaching about the grace of God for decades, but he really didn't experience it quite like he did with his friend when he took a child into his lap. And those poignant questions were, when did you judge her? At what age? When was the moment that you were no longer merciful toward her? Grace-filled goodness always begins with forgiveness. It forms into freedom, and it resists fear. Jesus will tell us not to be afraid, but he does remind us that what we project onto other people is usually what comes back onto us. So this is Luke 6, 37, 38. Don't judge or you'll be judged. Don't condemn or you'll be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. Now here's the line. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's sobering, isn't it? If you lack compassion, if you lack grace, if you lack graciousness toward other people, more than likely that's not going to come back your way. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So here is how a grace-filled culture works. It resists judgment. You see, a judgment-based culture stifles freedom through legalism, authoritarianism, status, approval, that type of thing. But a grace-based culture leaves room to learn and make mistakes, room for growth, and always plenty of forgiveness along the way. But we're going to have to grow into that. And that's the second point. You're going to take a gamble on grace, and you will need to grow in it. Peter said, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Gambling on it, are you willing to take the gamble? And then are you willing to grow in it? Because it will not come all at once. It will not all come simultaneously. You will have these moments where you're afraid to step off your oxbow lake, and then you'll step back uh, and realize, hey, I'm stuck here, and you'll take a step forward. And what we find is growing in grace looks a lot like this graphic here, that as we move along, we'll get stuck along the way, Hopefully, we wake up and we realize when we're on an oxbow lake and we get back into the channel of where the river is flowing. We must be willing to continue to move downstream to where the river is headed. And we must give ourselves the freedom to wonder and to explore and even doubt some of the things maybe that we have been taught our entire lives because in the end, it only leads to legalism. It only leads to closed-mindedness. And we must not fear if we make a wrong turn here or there. 
That's a part of grace too. We give grace to other people on their journey down the river, and hopefully that's what's returned to us as well. If there are numerous oxbows down the river, then we must be patient with those that we are waiting to catch up. And it, it takes a while to do that. We must always remember that we went on a journey. And maybe we're at number two, but there are people in our lives that are at number one, and we get frustrated with them. We get mad or angry with them because they just won't see. Think about where you were at that point in time. It took you time to think. It took you time to change. It took you time to open up and think differently than what you had been told. And so be patient, and by all means, don't judge other people. And I must remember that the fears, the questions, and even the sticking points, and what is at stake when we're willing to ask those questions, we must remember what it felt like when we were there. You see, we try to meet other people where they are. I go back to them. I don't try to drag them forward. And so if there are a number of oxbow lakes, we're all at a different spot because there's an infinite number of oxbow lakes in this life. And maybe I'm on number four, or number seven, or number 10. But other people will sure appreciate the graciousness that we give to them to be patient and loving, to be kind in the process. You know, this is a whole different culture than the one we see where there's the political wars that are going on on news channels and radio and stuff. I get so sick of it. I really do. We are to be carriers of grace. So I thought of this uh, song by you 2 and um, I'm not going to play it for you, but uh, last week when I showed you a couple of videos, um, good old Facebook blocked our post because I guess I was in copyright violation. Okay, so when I send out to you this um, worship outline, I will often include, as I have in this, some um, YouTube references there. And you can go and you can look at it yourself if you want to take the time to do that. But I love this song, Grace, by YouTube, And it says, What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Isn't that great? Grace takes the blame. Grace covers the shame. Grace removes the stain. Grace finds beauty in everything. So I want to close this morning with another quote. This comes from Brene Brown. She says, grace means that all your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. Isn't that great? We've all made mistakes, some of them huge, some of them small, some of them stupid and foolish. But grace means that all your mistakes now serve a purpose. You learn, you grow, you expand in the process. And it doesn't need to serve your shame. How stupid am I, you know, hitting your head against the wall? because you made the wrong choice. Life is a process. It's not an outcome. And it's sometimes the process of failing and falling down and figuring out what went wrong so that you can then grow to the next level. So once we have a new vantage point, 
of grace, once we nurture that in our life and in the lives of other people, we can begin to see how the components of the stories of our lives begin to fit together. And by extending grace to each other, we are offering a chance for all of us to learn and to grow instead of staying stuck and stagnant on an oxbow lake. Would you stand with me, please? And we will close in prayer. So we are trying to nurture grace. Just kind of close your eyes for a second and listen to these words again as I close. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace means that all your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. So here is to fresh grace each and every day. God, give us a fresh understanding of what you're like as given to us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming out today, and I hope you have a great day and a great week.